Welcome back, one and all. You're tuned in to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's everything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your ever-faithful host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse website and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. So, if you've been listening to this show the past three years, well, you know that we pride ourselves on fading films of fine vintage and exceptional quality. And we share these commemoration duties with carefully curated guests who've studied, critiqued, or, in some cases, have even been involved in the making of these movies. Now, our usual formula, of course, is to interview one expert every episode. And that expert serves as our guide through this cinematic birthday party. Well, this month's motion picture is so big, so beloved, so significant that we couldn't possibly limit our Q&A to just one person. So when you're talking about a work as weighty as Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles, yeah, you need multiple co-pilots to keep the conversation soaring. So for this installment, we have not one, not two. We actually have rounded up three guests to help us celebrate the 80th anniversary of what many regard as the best film ever made. I wanted all the bases covered, so I enlisted an esteemed movie critic, an important insider at Turner Classic Movies, and a film scholar who knew Orson Welles personally and even acted in one of his films. So this time around, my batting lineup includes Chicago Tribune film critic Michael Phillips, TCM senior director of original programming Scott McGee, and film professor, historian, and author Joseph McBride back-to-back-to-back interviews with three admired and erudite experts who will not disappoint. Michael, Scott, Joe, and I will examine why Citizen Kane is worth celebrating all these years later, its impact and legacy, what we can learn from the film today, how it stood the test of time, and much, much, much more. This is definitely our most jam-packed episode yet, and there's lots of great information, insights, opinions, humorous anecdotes, and fascinating stories you've never heard before about both Kane and Wells to share with you. So sit back, strap in, and enjoy the ride. But first, as is customary on Cineversary, we need to set the proper scene. So let's learn a little more about RKO production number 281, as it was eponymously referred to at the time of its making, compliments of Wikipedia. Citizen Kane is a 1941 American drama film produced and directed by Orson Welles, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Herman Mankiewicz. The picture was Welles' first feature film, and it's considered by many critics and filmmakers to be the greatest movie ever made. Citizen Kane was voted number one in five consecutive British Film Institute sight and sound polls of critics, and it topped the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movies list in 1998, and then it topped it again in its 2007 update. Nominated for Academy Awards in nine categories, it won an Oscar for Best Writing for Original Screenplay, And it's also been praised for Greg Tolan's cinematography, Robert Wise's editing, Bernard Herrmann's music, and its narrative structure, all of which have been considered innovative and precedent-setting. 
This quasi-biographical film examines the life and legacy of Charles Foster Kane, played by Wells, a composite character based on American media barons William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, as well as Chicago tycoons Samuel Insull and Harold McCormick, and aspects of the screenwriter's own lives. Upon its release, Hearst prohibited the film from being mentioned in his newspapers. Now, following the Broadway success of Wells's Mercury Theater and the controversial 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds, Wells was courted by Hollywood. He ended up signing a contract with RKO Pictures in 1939. Although it was unusual for an untried director, he was given freedom to develop his own story, to use his own cast and crew, and to have final cut privilege. Following two abortive attempts to get a project off the ground, Wells wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane, collaborating with Mankiewicz. Principal photography took place in 1940, and the film was initially released on May 1, 1941, and then again to a wider audience later that year on September 5th. Even though it was a critical success, Citizen Kane failed to dazzle at the box office, although after counting receipts from re-releases, it's estimated to have garnered $1.6 million, which was nearly double that of its $839,000 budget. The film faded from view after its release, unfortunately, but it returned to public attention when it was praised by French critics such as André Bazin and re-released in 1956. Citizen Kane was selected by the Library of Congress as an inductee of the 1989 inaugural group of 25 films for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. As of right now, the movie tallies a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly, it was 100% until an older negative review <coughs> recently surfaced. <laughs> and a stunning 9.7 out of 10 average critical score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now that Wikipedia recap only skims the surface of this multi-layered movie, its making and its post-theatrical life over the eight decades since its debut. You're going to learn a lot more about how Kane was made and what makes it tick in the forthcoming interviews, so sit tight. Before that, however, let's perk our ears to the original trailer for Citizen Kane. Mike! Give me a mic! How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. Joseph Cotton. I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. Ruth. Look at the camera, Ruth. We caught Ruth with her hair up. And here's somebody you've all heard on the radio, so I don't have to tell you he's wonderful, Ray Collins. Dorothy Comingore is a name I'm going to repeat. Dorothy Comingore. I won't have to repeat it much longer. You'll be repeating it. And here's George Kouluris, who's a grand actor. I'll say that name again. George Kouluris. Watch it. Here comes Everett Sloan. Look out, Everett. Oops. Everett Sloan, ladies and gentlemen. He isn't necessarily a comedian. And here's one of the best actors in the world. 
Agnes Moorhead. I've said a lot of nice things, but Erskine Sanford deserves some more. Erskine. Erskine Sanford. So does Paul. Paul. Paul Stewart, everybody. Citizen Kane is a modern American story about a man called Kane, Charles Foster Kane. I don't know how to tell you about him. There's so many things to say. I'll turn you over instead to the characters in the picture. As you'll see, they feel very strongly on the subject. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, governor. Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learned what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week at the White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. I... Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. But all the girls say about him at first, but you know, I can't help but admire him. He's crazy. He's wonderful. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. Prior to raising the curtain on our guests, a quick heads up, folks. Michael, Scott, Joe, and I, yeah, we're going to be taking a detailed tour of Xanadu in our forthcoming discussions. In other words, prepare yourself for spoilers. So if you've arrived here out of curiosity and you haven't yet seen Citizen Kane, it's okay. We forgive you. And your classic movie fan badge won't be confiscated. But before we can absolve you of this egregious sin, please stop the podcast right now. Go watch Citizen Kane and return to us at this point. Okay, everybody back now. It's full speed ahead and on to our first guest. We have a very special guest joining us this month to help us celebrate the 80th anniversary of Citizen Kane and better understand why this movie still matters. It's Chicago Tribune film critic Michael Phillips, who I've learned shares at least one commonality with Orson Welles. Both were born in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Michael, welcome to Cineversary. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Eric. Did you ever go back to your hometown? And is it are there shrines to Orson Welles back there? Uh, yeah, and I'm bitter every time because there's no shrines to me. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, Welles had a very uh, uneasy relationship with Kenosha, I think, because he, I think by the age of two, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, at a very young age, I think he felt like this this, this small town provincial burg is not for me, you right. know, and, and he was off and running. Took his talents to Woodstock, <laughs> Illinois and said sayonara, right? That's right, that's right. But uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's kind of a great, 
it's kind of great to see, I think, little maybe bits and pieces of memories of, of his early years in Kenosha in mm. not so much Kane, but in his second film, Magnificent Ambersons, which is, okay. you know, the novel set in Indianapolis, you know, uh, not by name, but that was where it was, that, you know, Booth Target, et cetera. Anyway, but I think memories of, of kind of what he thought about Kenosha are in there. But anyway, that's an interesting connection. Any other connections we don't know of? Did you do an Ancestry.com kind of lineage and find out that uh, you share DNA or something? I will tell you one thing that sounds <laughs> totally weird, though. My grandmother, Mary Gallagher, told me once that when, she, when I was first into movies as a kid, that, uh, that she was asked out on a date by Maurice Bernstein, his guardian. Oh, my. But the Jewish-Irish gulf was too great to span back in 1920, whatever. And so that was that. That was the end of that anecdote. But isn't that wild? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Michael, for that. But yeah, let's get into this. So so when and where did you first view Citizen Kane? And where does this rank among Michael Phillips' personal favorites? Really high. And I don't, the naysayers and the people who say, oh, it's not all that great. You know, really, I don't have any patience for these people. But uh, I'll try to explain without too much, uh, you know, snide uh, asides you know, why I really love it. But I, I first saw it in high school. I was on the school newspaper staff. Mm-hmm. Here's how crazy we were for this film, which we most of us saw in a film class taught by the uh, the woman who was also advisor of the newspaper, right? And and we, we were so nuts for this film for a lot of different reasons that we had t-shirts made up that said, Kane and Rosebud live in G2, when G2 was the basement classroom where we did the newspaper at night. Oh, wow. So that if that isn't sort of pathetic film nerdism, you know, <laughs> we, you know we were 15, 16 years old, but, you know, it was it was just such a arresting combination of comedy, drama, mm-hmm. a straight, straightforward, you know, storytelling, completely fractured storytelling, the way it tells the story in a series of looping flashbacks and, and really, really kind of even today, I think you show people this film if they're if they're younger, if they're in high school and they haven't seen it. It's it's in a way it's it's, it's as disorienting to many people now, mm-hmm. in good ways, maybe not so good ways, but as it was in 1941, and that really says something. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think it's a challenging film, and challenging as uh, a word. I'm not trying to say it's uh, you know problematic. I mean challenging in a good way in terms of making you think. Mm-hmm. making your brain kind of work a little extra hard to put the jigsaw puzzle pieces together, if you will. I think that's the filmmaker's intent here. And that fractured narrative style, uh, again, it, it doesn't date. I think it's what helps keep Kane fresh and evergreen. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. That's that's a good way to look at it. And I think it's not that it doesn't have any emotional appeal or emotional content, but it, it, it is not a film that goes for the heart. It goes more for the head or yes. the subconscious even. And, and right. that's a different uh, mission. Uh, you know, we talked about on Film Spotting, we did a Casablanca look back uh, about kind of its slipping reputation over the, you know, in, re- in recent years, I guess, uh, down from kind of the most beloved, one of the most beloved films of all time, still is probably. But that's a film that makes, that, that purely works on a kind of a shameless emotional level. Of course. It's corn and it's, and it's, it's, it's uh, pulp romantic fiction. And I, I love it. Kane is not up to those things. Yeah. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. It's up to different sort of avenues. And, uh, and I'm still discovering kind of what what the ones that are appealed to me. It's interesting your comment there about how it appeals maybe more to your head than your heart. I would really agree personally here because 
it's always been a juggle for me. Uh, snicker, if you will, but, you know, growing up, Star Wars in 1977, that was like my Beatles on the Ed Sullivan moment for my generation. Okay. <laughs> so for years, it was my favorite film. And that appealed, you know, to my inner child, right? To my sense of wonder in the cinema. Right. But, you know, got a little older, so it's a wonderful life. I, I get it. It's sentimental. It's sappy. But it appeals to the heart. And that's always been kind of ranking right up there as well. Get a little older, go to, you know, uh, film school and uh, start learning a little bit more about how cinema really works and some of the great works out there. And absolutely, Citizen Kane it appeals to the head. You know, for me, it, it the film tops my list, uh, although it didn't always, as I said. After a second or third viewing back in college, I was convinced this was the greatest film ever made. But I always count out this to uh, the baseball argument. You can say that, for example, Babe Ruth was the greatest baseball player who ever played, yet you may believe that your hometown team's MVP is your favorite player, favorite versus greatest, right? Mm-hmm. And now, decades later, after some, you know, seasoning as a cineast, I can say unequivocally that Kane is, for me, the absolute best of the bunch. It's both the GOAT and my personal favorite. So uh, it has certainly risen in estimation for me over the years and sounds like you as well. It's way up high. The one, the one thing that I'd amend is I don't, it's not, I don't want to just make it seem like it's a cold intellectual exercise, although it will, it will always be too chilly for a lot of right. cinema taste. It's just not, you know, quote, relatable or sympathetic or, you know, the character. Well, that, that's what they say about Kubrick, too. But, hey, how can you argue with the genius of Kubrick, right? Here, exactly. And here's the thing. Kane is not just for the head. What it is, it is it is a wondrous delight for the eye. Yes. Because it, it has made the visual texture and the visual personality of that film, nothing had ever been done remotely like it since the great silent directors. Right. And honestly, nobody's, it's, it's as hugely influential stylistically as Kane was visually. And God knows that Netflix, David Fincher, Mank is ripping off the look of Kane while not really quite getting it, <laughs> I think, yeah. um, every chance it can get. But it is such a, a series of kind of like tricks and miniatures and amazing sort of cinematic fluidity. You know, yeah. uh, one thing that occurred to me just recently seeing it again for the, I don't know how many time, so many great film directors came out of the theater and are, have stage trained technique and a stage trained eye. Mm-hmm. And Wells somehow in his first film, first feature length film, broke free of the proscenium march and just sent that camera flying in and out of you know special effects, optical effects, the camera fluidity is amazing for Incredible. the first. For, 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 and so that's that's different than most any other stage trained great director that I know of. Yeah, again, first film, twenty five years old, and he said he had the confidence of ignorance. He didn't know any better, according to his testimony <laughs> of how how were you able to pull this off? Come on, did you study extensively the masters before you? No, he just basically said, if I knew too much, I probably would have been trepidatious about it. But the fact that I didn't know anything, if you believe what he said. It just led to uh, increased confidence. So it's, it really is an astounding achievement when you consider his age, what you said. He came from the theater, was able to accomplish this in his first movie. We could talk for days about this, but let's shift here. I want to ask you, how does a film critic approach and appraise a movie like Citizen Kane? Is it blasphemy, Michael, to speak negatively in any way about this film among fellow critics or your followers, for that matter? No, hell no, it's not blasphemy. Who cares if, it, if, if your opinion isn't in line with sort of the received wisdom about a film's greatness. Okay. All you're trying to do when you're when you write about it or think about any film that means that it's worth writing or thinking about, it's just it's just determining for yourself 
you know, why am I having the reaction and the response I'm having? Mm -hmm. And that is honestly such a difficult task right there that any, any sense of grappling with a film's reputation tends to be a dead end, I think, because while it's worth talking about, I, I think the, the dullest thing you can say about any great film or any negligible film is it doesn't live up to the hype. Mm. Well, you know, first of all, who cares? And, and is it the film, you know, is the hype the film's fault? Is it the filmmaker's fault? You know, rarely. So that, that issue, I think, is a little less fruitful to get into about you know whether or not I love it as much as some or more than others. Mm. I do think when Citizen Kane got knocked off the sight and sound pole of greatest films of all time, which it had been at the top for many years, and it was knocked out by Vertigo, Hitchcock's Vertigo. Yeah, back in 2012, right? Right, right, right. And uh, you know that kicked up a whole new kind of <laughs> storm of, of how can this be, or you know it's about time, or whatever people thought about it. And I guess that's... I guess what it is is a reminder of how personally we take even such a codified thing as like a, a list of greats to this mm-hmm. and that. I, I don't know. We 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 like film. We like films for different reasons. You know, I, I I it took me years to even tolerate It's a Wonderful Life, and and I know that's that's blasphemy. It took years for me to appreciate what some John Ford westerns meant to the culture and went meant to many critics. You know, why I always loved. A lot of Ford's work, I, I resisted, and to some degree, I still resist certain films like The Searchers. Okay, um, but you know why? I haven't really wrestled with that fully yet in a piece, so uh, I'll work on it. <laughs> with Kane and Wells, I, the interesting issue I think, Eric, is where does it fit in your list of Orson Welles movies? You know, I, I love to know that actually. What is the top of the list for you? Wells. You're asking me personally? Yeah, why not? You're the host. I am not a Wells scholar in terms of knowing A to Z, his life or his work, but boy, I sure pride myself on learning as much as I can and seeing, I think I've seen almost every one of his feature films by now, and he only has, what, 13 to 15, depending on how you count some of these, like The Immortal Story. But yeah, no, there's no question about it. I'm intrigued by TCM and that uh, documentarian trying to find the lost cut of the Magnificent Ambersons, something oh, we may man. never know if it would have been better, yeah. if it would have been the Holy Grail even better than Kane, possibly. But let's assume that never happens and it's never unearthed. Citizen Kane will stand as the ultimate testament to the genius of Wells and his collaborators. I don't want to diminish uh, Mankiewicz or anyone else who worked with him, of course. But right up there, I got to tell you, and this is a recent discovery, something that passed my wheelhouse for so many decades, but Falstaff or Chimes at Midnight is just a fantastic movie. And I know some experts, including I think Bogdanovich, have said, you know, that is, they think, his best work. So it's always due for reappraisal, but I don't think you can go any loftier than Kane as far as Wells' filmography. And it's not a very extensive filmography, let's face it. It's not like he made 50-plus pictures like Alfred Hitchcock, but it's an easy answer for me. Yeah. How about you? I love it. It holds together. You know, it's the movie he wanted to make, which is, it's a miracle that RKO gave him that kind of carte blanche. just based Amazing. on, yeah. And, but, but I will say this, there are individual shots and sequences in Magnificent Emerson's that I think reveal an even greater artist mm-hmm. than anything in Kane does, which is amazing. I think that, I think the emotional content of Chimes at Midnight, which is, you know, uneven, God knows, and is full of sure. patchwork, you know, uh, audio, uh, you know, dubs and all kinds of things, you know, but the emotional content and the, and the betrayal at the heart of that, of, of Prince Helen is false. That, that that's, that's some of the truest 
clearest, most moving emotional yep. content he ever dealt with. No question. It could be his best performance in the movies he's directed, too. Good point. Yeah, good point. Not a funny fall. If Pauline Kael was right on this point, not a funny fall staff, but a really mm-hmm. a, a wise and moving one. And that's those are that's a good trade. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Michael, you're a longtime journalist. How does Citizen Kane play as a newspaper film or a movie that depicts the media? Well, this is the great thing. I mean, as I told you, you know, I fall in love with this thing at age 15 or 16. And we have, the, you know, if you're working on the school paper in high school in 1977, mm-hmm. and somehow this movie from 1941 says, you know, it speaks to you. And so, you know, and it, honestly, it's because of that great line where he says, I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. <laughs> and he inspires the ire of Thatcher, which we just love. Thatcher breaks the fourth wall and looks directly at the camera in a couple of occasions as he's exasperated by that line. Nobody could sputter like that actor. I mean, just amazing. Uh, the Pauline Kael essay, Raising Cain, is full of factual, dubious uh, territory. And yep. all about kind of the, you know, whether or not Mankiewicz or Wells, or who, who really had, had the predominant authorial hand in the screenplay. And of course, this is argued, you know, all the way through, the David Fincher film Mank, but uh, it it does belong to a newspaper movie tradition. Yes, and it just happens to be kind of the earnest melodrama about about you know the role of newspapers or the media in uh, cultural life, American life, or just one man's destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's got a lot of the the early scenes, especially the flashbacks. They really go back to the beginning of how how Wells takes over the Enquirer. And is this sort of weird combination and, and it's just ever oscillating combination of high-minded principles and complete craven self-interest. Hmm. And that's why the Kane character remains, I think today, such a tantalizingly ambiguous and rich uh, enigma. It's not, he's not one thing or the other. Yeah. And Really, even the people who didn't respond in the press to Citizen Kane back in 1941 really were astounded by what Wells could do at age 25, as you mentioned, very young, you know, kind of like brilliantly delineating every period of that guy's life from young man to old man. And um, but yeah, at heart, it's a newspaper movie. It's also like a really weird gothic newspaper movie just because it's got such a kind of a weird gothic overtone with with you know Kane, Kane and down in Xanadu you know the, those scenes that kind of bookend the film right even Baroque you can call it Baroque absolutely and it's not and people were just kind of uh, you know reading the, the Chicago Tribune's review back in 41 which is one of the most negative written uh, no comment uh, you know they they just were they creeped out by the whole sinister atmosphere and aura of the film and, and of course that's for me part of the appeal yeah <laughs> I'm actually astounded I know the the movie has made headlines recently just in terms of Rotten Tomato has uncovered a negative review that notched it down from 100 that's the one and that, was it the Tribune the one? one okay it's interesting I, without actually reading further into the story made me think well I'm surprised as much controversy as this movie garnered back in the day I'm amazed they haven't uncovered more negative reviews about it, just because it would have been controversial back in 1941. Just even among the, you know, the cognoscenti, among the uh, film literati, and among the critics and reviewers of the time, and, and there had to be plenty of them. There were there were many many newspapers back then, but not doing the digging on my own, I wouldn't know it. So anyway, I'm I'm just amazed that there aren't more 
of these reviews that, that might be uncovered in the future. Anyway, thanks for that answer. I was very curious what your take was as a newspaper man, of course. So, yeah, has the public's opinion of Kane or its filmmakers involved, including, of course, Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz, as we talked about, has this opinion changed much over past years? And I want to dovetail that with your talk about Mank, for example. Do recent movies or books or other works about Kane or Welles elevate or diminish the film or its collaborators in any way, whether fairly or unfairly, Michael? Well, Mank is a real good place to start yeah. there, just because it's you know it's, a, it's it was nominated for ten Oscars most recently. Sounds right, yeah. and mm-hmm. one I believe two, which is uh, one more than Citizen Kane won, which makes me sleep a little less well at night. But I, I'll get over it. I, so I do think that film, for one, is probably simply the latest slightly maligning portrait of Orson Welles, and in the in the case of Mank. Uh, that's a Valentine to Herman Mankiewicz, who no question was, I'd say, the primary script author. And there's little question that Wells and he rewrote that script. Uh, and then Wells probably had the last word on that rewrite process, a different, a slightly different direction. There's also no question that that script was unwieldy and really long <laughs> when it was still titled America. That's right. I think it's it's a fascinating compromise how how those two work together and uh, you know I think the Wellsians out there who are really strict Wellsians who really believe that he it's it's not, they didn't want to talk about Mankiewicz's contribution which is kind of nuts to me because Mankiewicz is a fascinating character and and was worth a biography and it actually was worth a slightly better biography than David Fincher gave us but these battles over uh, Wells's reputation and his greatness and whether or not he really squandered his talent, you know, and whether or not, you know, Kane, as you mentioned, is really all that. And well, of course, I do think it's all that. But, you know, it, it never does any film a favor to be parked at the number one spot for year after year after year of, say, something like The Sight and the Sound international poll. It just doesn't. People have an innate response to seeing something like that, uh, 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 simply wanting to take it down a peg. I argue with it. And, and it, you know, it's honestly worth arguing because, you know, whatever, to to say one film is greater than another would imply that they had identical aesthetic missions or something, you know, which is not true. So yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating argument. It just begs the question, how will the future uh, look upon Orson Welles? How will future generations view a figure like him just in terms of how subsequent movies, biopics, works like Mank, for example, how they treat him as well as his collaborators, fairly or unfairly? I guess the jury is still out and uh, we'll just have to keep an eye on that. And it'll be an interesting kind of watch just in terms of how people assess or reapprise not only the man, but also the movie. Absolutely. You know what I think of when I think of Citizen Kane? I think of what Roger Ebert said. One of his most useful reminders is that it's not what a movie is about, it's how it is about it. That's Citizen Kane in a nutshell. It's how that movie was made. It's mm-hmm. how it looks. It's how it dares to tell its story and and keep you guessing about this enigma's true intentions or his you know, uh, strengths and weaknesses as a human being, all of it. It's, I mean, it, it's, that is why I think 50, 100 years from now, if, if we are caring at all about how movies are or uh, were uh, told and made, um, I think that's why we're always going to come back to this director. And I really do hope that a lot of people 
look, in a perfect world, we will see that uh, Wells cut of Magnificent Ambersons, and we can really look at uh, what might have been a film that is arguably in some ways even greater than Kane, but as is, my God, what a calling card. I mean, it is by far the greatest first film ever made, and it seems nuts to argue. No, I think if he had died after this film was released, I think Wells' reputation would have been already cemented. And the fact that we got anything further from him at all, uh, despite the kind of Hollywood blacklisting of him and and so forth, the pariah nature and the retreat to Europe, the, the scrabbling for funds to make his European productions, it's all gravy to me. So I think his genius is well on display here. And genius of working with great collaborators. It's not all about Wells. Greg Toland, my God. Right? He's a hero. Greg Toland. And the credit he gets was unprecedented, I think, in Hollywood. Because it's almost, I mean, he gets, his name is as big as Wells. Is That's right. They share a title card on the credits at the very end, which uh, was unprecedented. And I think well-deserved. So no question. Instead of us giving a present to Citizen Kane on his 80th birthday, I think the film continues to bestow its gifts on audiences. So, Michael, what is Citizen Kane's greatest gift to viewers? I think it's dazzling to the eye, and every every second it's playing some sort of amazing trick on that same set of eyes. Mm. And that's that's a miracle, I mean, I mean to me. And um, I think... A film that has a tone range, a tonal range between tragedy and slapstick and uh, this really sharp Herman Mankiewicz verbal sparring uh, that's just funny up against, you know, sort of a, a very interesting kind of political and socioeconomic wisdom. Uh, that, that film is up to a hell of a lot. And I do find it the opposite of pretentious, frankly, as a film, because it's when you talk about the moral of a, of a movie or the moral of the story of Charles Foster Kane, I hate to invoke Donald Trump, but for an unproduced documentary, Errol Morris, the documentary filmmaker, interviewed Trump years ago before he was our president. And, you know, because of allegedly Trump's favorite movie was Citizen Kane. That's right. And he said, you know, on that tape, the, the one... Uh, smart thing the guy ever said in his life was, which is like, you know, money isn't everything. That's what he got out of it. And I suppose if you really wanted to boil the, the narrative of Citizen Kane down, yes, it's, it's, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, absolute uh, yearning for wealth, uh, you know, leaves you a hollow man. Money can't buy you love. The whole I love it. And it's as simple as that. And it's, you know, I, that, but, you know, that's not why I, I love that movie for really what it says. It's really more about the Ebert dictum of how it's saying sure. it. And that, and it's a reminder that movies are a uh, profoundly visual medium. And my God, Orson Welles was, was uh, a master right away. Oh, well said, Michael. If you bear with me, I want to briefly tell you my answer here. I think there's so many gifts to choose from. But one of Kane's most important gifts, for me anyway, is its limitless rewatchability factor hmm. and the degree to which it rewards repeat screenings. So despite seeing Kane probably, I would estimate, what, 25 plus times in my life, I discover something new every single time I revisit Kane. So example number one, I watched it this past couple days. 
I noticed for the first time the wink-wink that Wells is having with his audience when, with his first speaking line in the film, and this occurs during the newsreel sequence early on, he says, quote, don't believe everything you hear on the radio, unquote. And I've long been a fan of Orson's stellar work on radio in the 1930s through the 1950s, and you'll recall that he was given the keys to the kingdom by RKO by virtue of his prowess as a storyteller on radio. Remember, he thrilled most of the nation with his infamous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. So this was the first time I really made that connection and truly appreciated that line. So that's a good example of how re-watching even movies you think you've seen to death, I mean, you'll uncover so many new treasure troves. Example number two, Michael. When Kane loses the election for governor, Bernstein has the Inquirer run the alternate headline, Fraud at Polls. Well, of <laughs> course, that takes out a whole new resonance in 2021 after our former president and his supporters and the right-wing media claimed the same thing in our most recent election. So it makes Kane feel oddly prescient and ahead of its time. But, you know, beyond r- relatively trivial examples like these, each time I take that trip back to Xanadu, Michael, I find myself pulled into that Wells web and then intrigue by the many mysteries woven into Citizen Kane, complements of that ultra-sophisticated narrative. And I want to close this by just quoting who you mentioned earlier, Roger Ebert. He said in his great movie essay on this film, its depths surpass understanding. I have analyzed it a shot at a time with more than 30 groups, and together we have seen, I believe, pretty much everything that there is on the screen. But the more clearly I can see its physical manifestation, the more I am stirred by its mystery. The structure of Citizen Kane is circular, adding more depth every time it passes over the life of Kane. Mighty good. Yeah, that uh, Roger could really uh, write. (laughs) He's he's sorely missed. I didn't appreciate him in his time, but boy, in catching up on his works posthumously, he was one of the greats. All right, anything you're working on that listeners should check out? Are you got any projects in the works or upcoming reviews that people should keep on their radar? Yeah, you know, I, I uh, WFMT.com, which is the local classical uh, station, uh, every every 9 a.m. on Saturdays, a Central Time show called Soundtrack. And I've played plenty of Bernard Herrmann music uh, over the weeks and years uh, from Citizen Kane and other films. But we do that every week. And I guest on Film Spotting. Uh, with Adam and Josh sometimes. And Such a great show that is. Great score. It's, it's fun to do it with them, and, and it's it's extra fun to lose or come in third almost reliably every, <laughs> every damn time I do the trivia spotting. That's right. I had the pleasure to have Adam as a guest on my show a couple of years ago, so it was fun to catch up with him. But I did not know about that WFMT show. Is that, what, 9 to what time? It's 9 to 10, and then my segment of it, uh, which is usually 10 minutes right at the top. Uh, so just, you know, tune to 9 Central Time, and, you know, I'll give you 10, 10 minutes of uh, good listening. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I will check that out. Hope the listeners do, too. Michael, anything further you wanted to add before we close the book here from the Thatcher Library? <laughs> That's right. If only the libraries today, Eric, had that kind of lighting, you know. Greg Tolan, <laughs> the light of Incredible, right? And it's just so sparse, so much negative space. There's nothing on the walls. It's just a big mausoleum. And then you got the statue of Thatcher out front. Oh, it's just a tour de force of visual aesthetics. No, it's great. Fantastic. Also, if they want to check out reviews, please go to chicagotribune.com slash movies. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. And we will continue to read and to listen for your appearances on Film Spotting. Thanks, Eric. It was fun. Always fun chatting with a renowned movie critic and one from my neck of the woods to boot. Our gratitude to Michael Phillips for joining us this month. And now on to special guest number two. 
Well, I'm thrilled to welcome Scott McGee, Senior Director of Original Programming for Turner Classic Movies. Scott, so delighted that you've agreed to appear on our Cineversary podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Eric, and I really do appreciate the ask. Absolutely. When I knew that we were going to be spotlighting Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, I, I the first thing I thought, of, I've got to try someone at Turner Classic Movies, and your name came highly recommended. So again, thrilled that you said yes. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. When and where did you first see this film, Scott? What's your relationship with Citizen Kane, and is this one of your personal favorites? Well, I would say that my relationship with Citizen Kane is is a is in a lot of ways a, a microcosm of my relationship with cinema itself. I mean, I I started watching classic films when I was a kid, um, probably around seven or eight years of age, where I discovered uh, non-Citizen Kane cinema like Abbott and Costello, uh, <laughs> Tarzan, uh, Martin and Lewis, uh, and a lot of that stuff. And, and it just sort of, uh, it just sort of begatted a lot of different rabbit holes that I went into. So after Abbott and Costello, I started watching Universal Monster Films and then got into a little bit of film noir. And then that introduced me to the you know the whole element of german expressionism mm. of how of how that that idea and that aesthetic plays in the noir mm-hmm. and of course if you're going to talk about german expressionism you're going to talk about you're going to run across citizen kane so I, i'm sure that i saw kane first probably on because I, I grew up in the atlanta area and so wtbs which was Ted Turner's flagship station uh, showed a lot of these films, even though at the time he didn't own them. He oh, just, I was going to ask, right? Mm-hmm. No, he didn't own them until he bought the library, I think, in '86. Okay. So before that, um, I had been watching WTBS, where a lot of these films were running uh, in syndication mm-hmm. um, uh, for years and years and years. So I'm sure that I first saw it then, um, but then in the boom time of 19 also 1986 when my parents first got a vcr uh i uh, I, st- I discovered kane uh through vhs and awesome yeah I, I gotta say that was the first vhs i ever bought vhs tape like i had recorded plenty of stuff on tv but as far as an actual purchase it was kane so yeah. i can relate yeah yeah, so even even back then, I would consider myself a big film buff, but I was mm-hmm. in no way a, a student of film yet. I, I had um, you know I'd picked up some books here and there, but not not I I wasn't really into the studious nature of film history. I just okay. loved watching movies mainly because it was uh you know I wasn't a shy person. I mean I was fairly popular in school, but there was something about black and white movies that that. Uh, that suggested your own little world. And it was a, it was just sort of an, a, a, something that nobody, none of my friends were talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of enjoyed that exclusivity of classic film. But anyway, once I got into high school and into college, I started to, you know, take, take film more seriously as a possible profession, you know, what could I do with this love of cinema? You know, I, I had aspirations of being a movie maker, but for one reason or another, I just, my focus in college, uh, I went to Georgia state university. It became more uh, about the study of film. And in that way, I was able to look at Kane and the Orson Welles cinema more closely and, 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 really appreciate why it's considered the greatest movie ever made. 
is it my favorite movie of all time? No, uh, but it is one of my personal favorites. It, it, it's it's a movie that when I see it, it, it's a lot like Vertigo. Every time I look at Vertigo and Citizen Kane, I see something different. I see something new. And so it's uh, it's always giving of something. Totally agree. And that was a nice segue. I know you broached this, but as a formal question, I was going to ask you, why is Kane worth celebrating eight decades later? So Scott, why does it still matter? Can you put your finger on it? I think that Kane is, is emblematic of what the best of what the Hollywood studio system was capable of doing. There are far other productions such as Gone with the Wind or, you know, Casablanca that are much more formal in how they how they made motion pictures, how the Hollywood studio system made motion pictures. But Kane, with the same craftsmen, with the same technicians, with the same artists behind the scenes, if the studio system, if the moguls had allowed other filmmakers like Orson Welles to have his so-called uh, own personal train set. I believe that's how Wells had referred to his unit for, uh, of making Citizen Kane. If they had allowed all these other filmmakers that much freedom, that much creative expression, mm-hmm. what would they have come up with? Amazing to think. I think Citizen Kane is sort of the alter ego, almost the id of, of, of the public face of Hollywood filmmaking. And don't get me wrong, I love Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, Casablanca, uh, that's a move. That's one of the few movies that I can see uh, in one sitting and then immediately start over again. I'm totally with you there, Scott. Peas in a pod there. This is in no way a, a you know a, a detraction of what Holly of what standard Hollywood filmmaking is all about. Sure, but but Kane represents, I think, an artistic milestone, an artistic elevation that that. Hollywood could have attained more of. There could have been more Citizen Kanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some ways there were. I mean, there were other filmmakers who worked independent of the studio system and, and achieved incredible motion pictures, but not quite to the degree of Citizen Kane. So I think it matters because, it, it, as I mentioned at the top, it's still endlessly fascinating. It's always giving something of its secrets of how Wells and his and Greg Toll and the cinematographer and all of the other people behind the camera, how they approach this film. It's not all laid bare on the screen upon first viewing. It's sometimes you have to watch third, fourth or fifth viewing to really start to unpeel that onion. Yeah. And talking with Michael Phillips, this was my major point about <laughs> part of the reason it still matters is it rewards repeat viewings. Like, I I mean, I've seen Kane at least 25 plus times. I stopped counting, of course, but just this most recent watch. I mean, I'm noticing things that I never saw before, a couple of new things. And it speaks to your point, which is it's very giving film. As far as why it's worth celebrating eight decades later, my take is that it's a miracle the film survived at all, if you know anything about its history, right? You consider that William Randolph Hearst, upon whose life it is loosely based, he tried to have it destroyed, as did many studio moguls, as well as members of the media who worked for her. So everybody was out for the throat of this film at the time. 
And I think it's also worth commemorating because it demonstrates how precocious talent and youthful exuberance can change cinema. Uh, amazingly, Kane is the work of a first-time filmmaker. Orson Welles was only 25 years old at the time of production. 25 years old! It's I think of myself at that age. I had my head up my butt, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's just incredible to think what someone that young and precocious could do. Now, of course, he was the boy genius at the time, and, and he, was, he had a lot of enemies uh, with that title that came with it. But Welles did impress RKO Studios so much with his Mercury Theater on the Air radio broadcasts and his ability to garner public attention that he was given carte blanche creative freedom to make whatever kind of movie he wanted. And he and his troupe proved that, you were talking about this, that given unchecked artistic autonomy, they could create a work of lasting brilliance that, at the time at least, broke and rewrote many of the rules of narrative cinema. The problem was he drew the ire and jealousy of Hollywood with this unprecedented hubris, as was interpreted by a lot of his peers, and it nearly bankrupted RKO, and it led to a house cleaning at the studio, and eventually led to Bell's banishment from Hollywood. I mean, it's a sad story. It's a tragic story. But also, uh, you mentioned this earlier, it, it still matters because of its exemplary pedigree. You consider the immense talents involved in this one production. It's got one of the greatest American directors of all time in Wells. Maybe the most gifted cinematographer ever in Greg Tolan, perhaps the finest film composer of them all in Bernard Herrmann, arguably the best ensemble cast of all time, quite possibly the finest original screenplay of all time. So Citizen Kane may be greater than the sum of its parts, but my issue is that those parts are each pretty great. I think the pedigree speaks for itself. Yeah, I totally agree. And there, there, there's something you had said earlier about about Wells coming from radio. This is a good example where, as somebody who is new to film, who had never who had never made a, a feature film before, is able to change cinema. And yes. I think that I think Kane matters today. Why it's still worth celebrating because we can look at how artists and uh, filmmakers who originated in other disciplines yes. still have the power to come in and bring a new a, a new perspective and a new way of doing things that is original uh, and is fresh. You know, th think of uh, Jordan Peele uh, with Get Out, his directorial debut. That's a great example. Jordan Peele was not known as a great filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, he had appeared in movies, of course, uh, television shows, and primarily as an actor. And then lo and behold, he comes out with a, a genre redefining horror film mm -hmm. that, you know, is going to be in the books for, you know, forever as, as being a key film in the, in the horror cycle. So not saying that Jordan Peele is Orson Welles. I, you know, sometimes Orson Welles wasn't even Orson Welles. <laughs> You know, but there, and there are other areas too where a wonderful film that I just adored called Eighth Grade, Bo Burnham. He was a primarily, a, I think, a blogger would post uh, videos on YouTube. And he, you know, he starts to, he creates this feature film, a, a really sweet overlooked film uh, from two years ago. It just underscores the fact that you don't have to be a film school graduate to make a, a lasting motion picture to make change in in film you know you have to be somebody with a vision and uh, i think that in a lot of ways wells's film is sort of the grandfather of independent cinema may, of making something lasting mm -hmm. you know even even though you may you may have pissed off the studio unit the old guard of of hollywood 
And yet, but yet you still make a movie that lasts. That word independent is important because even though it's under the auspices of RKO, not technically an independent production, it's independent in the sense that uh, they were free from the shackles of studio interference, right? So that goes a long way. The fact that, as you said, these creative people were allowed to make the movie they wanted to make without encumbrances from above, that made a huge difference. We wouldn't have the movie we have today without that kind of creative autonomy. All right, Scott, I want to ask you, of course, being with TCM, is Citizen Kane the crown jewel in Turner's library? Does the channel kind of regard this as its crown jewel? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, You know, I think it is one of the crown jewels, along with The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But certainly Citizen Kane is up there, which is interesting because I think in a lot of ways, Kane is the story of, 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 a, of a wealthy man, you know, whose life is told, retold back in, in flashback, the whole nature of what his life amounted to, what, it, what was it worth, you know, is very similar to the person who originally owned the film, Ted Turner, who began TCM in, in April of 94. That's interesting, I yeah. I think Ted mm-hmm. Turner's legacy as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, uh, as a media mogul, as a, a philanthropist is, I think, in a lot of ways, a, a mirror image or uh, p- perhaps the flip side to what Charles Foster Kane eventually became. But as as a property of, of TCM and, of course, now Warner Media, yeah, Citizen Kane is it is a crown jewel in the library, no doubt about it. But how often does TCM play this movie, would you say, in an average year? And, and is there still a strong demand or request for it from viewers? That's kind of hard to say. You know, even though I am in the programming department, I don't know how often our, you know, regular films like uh, Singing in the Rain are played on, a, on an annual basis. Okay. I, I, I'm sure I'm sure it's like four or five times, uh, if not more. We certainly have the freedom to play it as much as we want, but right. you know the thing about TCM is that we we don't ever show a movie just to show a movie. There's every film in the in the schedule from the weekdays to the primetime hours all over the weekend. Every film there is showing for a reason, whether it's because of somebody's birthday or it's it's part of a of a major theme that month, or it's part of a one of the franchises like The Essentials or Silent Sunday Nights. There's always a reason for it to be there. And sure. so Citizen Kane, some years it might play more than others. It just depends on what uh, what the programming uh, dictates. I don't know if we're playing it for the 80th anniversary. I, okay. I would be shocked if we're if we didn't. We're really good at recognizing anniversaries for the most part. Sure, I know there's kind of two anniversaries. There's May 1st when it was you know, first seen. Later in September, I believe, is is when it was more widely distributed. So maybe you've got something coming up in the fall as well. Maybe so. You know, and I will say that, you know, in regards to your question about strong demand, we have a a franchise that we used to do on a monthly basis. We're doing a little bit less often now called Guest Programmer, where we have a a celebrity or a a well-known personage of some sort come on and in co-host a night of films that he or she did. That's a lot of fun. That's a great aspect of, of the TCM lineup. It's awesome. Yeah. So Citizen Kane is often chosen by guest programmers. I uh, would imagine, yeah. I recall, I think uh, William Friedkin picked it because uh, Kane is uh, his favorite film, I believe. Uh, and many others uh, picked it, including several years ago. I, I think this was back in 2006, maybe. 
Donald Trump was a guest programmer. <laughs> That's right. This this has garnered quite a bit of media attention in this 80th anniversary year. I'm finding more and more stories about that. Yeah. The other two films he picked that night were The African Queen and Gone with the Wind and Citizen mm. Kane aired last that night. I can't say that Donald Trump was all that knowledgeable about the film. I mean, he did have some of the facts correct, mm-hmm. but he his insight into the film was a bit lacking. And, you know, I, I think one of the lessons that he had articulated about the film was that when Kane was attacked, he attacked back. And that's what I do. That's his modus operandi, as he put it. When I'm attacked, I attack back. And that's that's what he garnered from Citizen Kane, which is funny anyway <laughs> so yeah so there there are big fans of the movie both big and small um and so it, it is i think it it speaks to people on uh, on several different levels do you think that carrying the reputation of quote best film ever made unquote is it a blessing or a curse for this movie i mean is it impossible for kane to live up to those expectations for young and future generations who will want to watch it for the first time and Maybe you want to see what all the hype is about? That is a question I think is rooted very much in a poll that was first, I think it was first taken in 1952, a poll conducted by Sight and Sound, part of the British Film Institute. And what Sight and Sound did was they they do a 10-year a poll where every 10 years they they take a, a, a questionnaire across for, for, for film critics and for filmmakers around the world. And they are asked, each of those people who are polled are asked to come up with a top 10 list and a ranking of the top 10 films of, of cinema, of world cinema, not just Hollywood cinema. And I think starting in 52, Kane started to appear at the top. Every 10 years after, from 52, 62, 72, and on, up until 2012, it was it was consistently ranked at number one. Yeah, I think starting in 62 for t- five straight decades, it was number one. There you go. Thank you. 62 was the first year it was number one. So I think because of that poll and because it had earned this international reputation, courtesy of the Sight and Sound uh, poll that, that you know, there was no other poll like it in the world. I think it earned that reputation as the so-called greatest movie ever made. And I think some people sort of grew tiresome of it. Mm. You know, they, they felt like, oh, well, it's just because of this one poll that is considered greatest film ever made. Can we really honestly come up with the single greatest film ever made? And so I think in a lot of ways, and answer your question, I think it was a curse because people who were introduced to the film, even though they had not, never seen Citizen Kane, they probably knew it by reputation as being the so-called greatest movie probably not just from school books or from teaching, but also from jokes, you know, people would make comic jokes about Citizen Kane. And they, they, so they would know it by reputation without ever having ever seen the film. So these new people, these young and future generations that you spoke of in your question, they come to the film almost with their guard up, right? Like prove to me, that you're the greatest film ever made. And it's already got strikes against it with younger generations, I'm assuming. It's black and white. It's old. They probably don't know any or, or, or most of the names involved. So, again, it's already an uphill battle, right? And so it's kind of like what you're saying, impress me. And it's going to be hard to live up to those expectations. Would you agree? I totally agree, especially in the sense that 
the reason why Kane was such a groundbreaking shock to the system in 1941 is because it employed in a way that propelled the story forward. It used techniques that are that we now all take for granted. Nonlinear storytelling, deep focus photography, the invisible use of, of special visual effects and telling of the story. We all see these in cinema now. And so, and so generations that are coming that see Kane today are unfairly looking at it uh, as, oh, well, what's the big deal? They're not looking at it from the context of history, mm-hmm. which is crucial to understand why Kane is important and still remains so today. So interesting. Okay, it's the 80th birthday give or take, for Citizen Kane. And it's the gift that keeps on giving is my contention. So what is this film's greatest gift to viewers? What would you say? Well, Eric, there's two gifts, I think. One gift of Citizen Kane is how cinema can be such a potent observer and investigator of the elusiveness of truth. That when you go about to solve a problem or you go about to illustrate or depict an historical event or the life of a person, there is no way to truly encapsulate what that thing was all about. Even though we try, we try to tell a full three-act structure story and come away with some sort of understanding of the narrative of who the person was or what the event was about. I think you're talking about it's almost the Rashomon effect. And uh, Wells Wells talked about this at length with Bogdanovich in their famous interviews about how long before the film Rashomon came out, this was kind of a Rashomon-like film in which, you know, you have several different testimonies from different people who know the man the story is about. And it speaks to the enigmatic nature of human beings, right? The impossibility of truly understanding someone else and the futility of attempting to decipher a life and its myriad mysteries. Is that what you're going for? I think you're telling it better than I could. (laughs) I don't want to presume that, but we're simpatico here. Well, and it reminds me of the Simpsons joke about how Marge told Homer, I think that was the time that we went to see that movie Rashomon and Homer responds, that's not the way I remember it. (laughs) I knew you were coming to that punchline. But yeah, the truth, enigmatic truth of any one person's life or the historical event or the nature of of even a fictional character You know, it can't really be fully told, but Citizen Kane, I think, revels in that. And Mm -hmm. and it it wears it on its sleeve that, no, you can't fully know the the totality of the mystery, but the investigation, the pursuit of it is its own reward. The second thing, in two words, what's the gift of Citizen Kane that keeps on giving? Bernard Herrmann. Oh, yes. Bernard Herrmann's score for Citizen Kane, this was his first uh, film score, Look, I'm sure that Bernard Herrmann would have found work uh, in Hollywood, even if he never did Kane. But man, what a debut and what a what a a portent of things to come with Herrmann's work in his films with Hitchcock and the uh, uh, films that he did for the Ray Harryhausen cycle. uh, The Ghost in Mrs. Muir for uh, for Joseph Mankiewicz and later for Scorsese. And later for Scorsese and and uh, Brian De Palma, right. you know. Th- so this this was a guy that has influenced so many composers, such as John Williams. That it it's it's impossible to overstate how important Bernard Herrmann was to movie music. Uh, and and Kane is you know the the music of Kane is is a is another aspect of the film that 
bears its own study uh, and its own appreciation. When you think about the score. I can only relate to my opinion here. You tell me if you disagree, but I don't pay attention much to the score in this movie the first few times I've seen Kane, but it's the subsequent viewings where it just seeps into your consciousness. It just kind of digs itself in there. And you recall different, and I don't want to say leitmotifs because there's not a lot of repeated music per se, but just this brooding, passionate kind of uh, underscore of a score that, again, burrows its way into your mind. And every time I see it, I look forward to hearing the strains, to hearing the different musical discords and chords of, you know, tension and stress and melancholy infused in that score do you agree i do agree it is a rich uh, experience just to hear the music absolutely uh, even even independent of the film itself sure i think this was a whole new way to tell a cinematic tale in 1941 you've already touched on this but just in summary it employs nonlinear storytelling, flashbacks, including flashbacks that overlap or mirror earlier flashbacks. You got this puzzle-like construction in which a journalist serves as the detective-like surrogate for the audience and the choice to center the action around a MacGuffin-like mystery that drives the plot and our intrigue. What does the word rosebud mean? Does it really matter? Well, it drives the whole story. It's so interesting as a conceit. And then secondly, Scott, the inventiveness and the technical trickery with which Wells and crew were able to make you believe that anything was possible in a movie made 80 years ago, that still astonishes me. You know, despite all the technical limitations of the day, such as the fact, for example, that split diopter lenses had not yet been invented to make deep focus possible. Didn't matter. Toland found a way to make it happen. Uh, Real ceilings for interior shots could not be constructed because the microphones could not be hidden. They found a way around it. They put muslin up on the ceiling to hide the microphone. They didn't have completely mobile, lightweight cameras that could shoot anywhere desired. And yet, you get that great shot where the camera swoops in past the neon sign and down through the skylight. It's just incredible. So... By using things like crafty makeup and brilliant matte paintings and chioscuro lighting design, documentary-like realism effects in the newsreel sequence, optical effects like you think of the Hall of Mirrors shot, and so many other bravura techniques in unique and memorable ways, the filmmakers, they fashioned undoubtedly the most stylistically diverse, visually exciting picture ever made up to that time. I think most experts would agree on that. And it's no wonder to me that Citizen Kane continues to be regarded as possibly the most influential and awe-inducing movie ever crafted, even eight decades following its debut. Every inventive technique, every creative problem that they approached and solved in the making of the film Mm -hmm. was there for a reason. The last thing that Citizen Kane, that Orson Welles and Tolan and the the rest could ever be accused of doing is uh, using gimmicks. The whole notion of 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 these of the dissolves of the hidden dissolves and the chiaroscuro lighting and the the showing of the ceiling of the low angle lenses all of that was there for a reason to propel the story and to encapsulate and concisely tell the, the story in a way that was able to get ne- unnecessary exposition off of the page. No question about it. Think of the of when we first uh, when we flash back to. Uh, to Kane growing up you know we see him playing in the snow and the camera pulls back and we see the the deal that his mom and dad are making uh, with the banker right and you see his entire life being shaped w- without him even being in the room you could have easily done this in a myriad different ways but when and using that 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 dolly back in that deep focus photography 
and keeping Kane in the far background in focus and foregrounding the action too, you're you're telling the story in a concise way that it's it's a shorthand. Yes. And not yes. not a lot of filmmakers know how to do right. that. Unnecessary exposition need not apply. So I mean it's a master class in, in filmmaking right there. All right, Scott, all good things must come to an end, they say, but let's catch up with you and what you're working on lately. Do you have any projects in the works? Any special events with TCM that folks should check out? Well, let's see, not with TCM that I can share at the moment, but I, I can say that I am working on uh, a book. I've been working on a book for some time on stunt work in the movies. Oh, cool. um, it's a look at 50 films from the silent era all the way to today and how the stunt work in those movies, why and how stunt work is, is an important aspect of the, of, film, of the filmmaking craft. It's not just about spectacle. It is a unique uh, and worthy aspect of the filmmaking craft, much as much as fil- uh, photography and, and production design is. So I'm looking forward to that. I can't say when it'll be out, but uh, that is uh, that is forthcoming. That sounds like a riveting read. So we will keep our radar peeled for that one. Thank you for uh, the tip off there, Scott. Thank you so much for agreeing to appear on Cineversary. We really appreciate your input and your opinions. Thank you so much, Eric. And anybody out there, you can follow me on Twitter at J, that's letter J, Scott McGee. Wow. Always cool to have a big wig from TCM on your Citizen Kane cheerleading squad. Props to Scott McGee for making a visit to Cineversary. Thanks, Scott. And that leads us to our third and final interview. Ready? Okay, here we go. Well, it's a treat to bring back to the Cineversary microphone San Francisco State University cinema professor Joseph McBride, a film historian who has written three books on Orson Welles, In addition to appearing in his film The Other Side of the Wind and, like Wells, I've learned, he was also born in the dairy state of Wisconsin. We previously had Joe join us for our celebrations of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The Grapes of Wrath. Now, those were episodes 15 and 19, which gives Joe the distinction of being our most frequent guest. Hello, Joe, and a warm welcome back to Cineversary. Hi, great to be with you again. It's always fun to talk about these films that are central to our film-going pleasure and edification. And you are central to our enjoyment of them, at least this particular episode and those previous ones I mentioned. So first question right out of the box, Joe, I have to ask you when and where you first saw Citizen Kane. Do you recall? Yeah, I remember it well. Uh, September 22nd, 1966. Wow, you have the date. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it meant that much to me. I was in a film class at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was 19 years old. And I, at that point, wanted to be, I, I was already a journalist, but I wanted to be a uh, journalist and novelist. And uh, that film changed my life because I, I, I thought, well, no, I'll become a filmmaker and write about films. And uh, I, I thought I, I'll, I'll make a film by the time of 25, like Orson Welles, which didn't actually happen. But uh, it set me on my goal, and I decided to write a book about Kane. And then I began seeing his other films just by chance that fall at at our student union, they had a series of six Wells films. And so I saw Touch of Evil and The Magnificent Ambersons and some other ones, The Stranger. And, and I, I realized, oh, he's done so many other uh, great films. And, and um, Ambersons just knocked me out. That's my favorite film of all time. And, and I thought, well, I should expand this. Uh, gradually, I thought I'll expand it into a study of his entire body of work as a, as the director up to that point. Well, that's quite a journey. So where does Citizen Kane rank among your favorite Wells films as well as maybe favorite movies ever? Is it up there? 
it's it's up there. Uh, the problem I have is that I've seen it so often that I got kind of OD'd on it after a while. What what I did was somehow I managed to get a 16 millimeter print of it. I didn't own it, but I borrowed it from somebody. I don't know even how. And I would watch it over and over again. It was my cinematic textbook. And so I have the film kind of memorized. I could, you know, I, I know all the dialogue before they speak and and I know all the shots. And I lost track of how often I saw it. I saw it, I think, 60 times uh, in about four years. And since then, I it's over 100 and I've lost track. But I also had the script of the film, which is my favorite screenplay of all time by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson mm -hmm. Welles. Uh, at the Wisconsin Historical Society on our campus, um, they have a small collection of Wells's papers, uh, actually the papers of his attorney, L. Arnold Weisberger, and one of them is a script of Kane. So I went up there with my little portable typewriter for a month and I typed a copy, an exact copy of the script. Oh my, wow. I couldn't afford to Xerox it. I was so poor. I, I was working as a dishwasher and, you know, I was really broke. Talk about suffering for your art, though. Not only did you not have the benefit of a, let's say, VHS tape or the rewind button, but you were threading actual 16 <laughs> millimeter film to be able to watch the movie multiple times. And then, as you say, you actually typed word for word the screenplay as opposed to, as you, as you said, photocopying it. That is diehardism. I will give you kudos. Well, it was good training, and, uh, you know, I got to know the script really well. It has a fantastic structure and uh, dialogue and descriptions. And I, I also wanted to be a screenwriter. You know, I was just saying I, it made me want to be a filmmaker. So I was teaching myself how to write a screenplay. Yeah. With the use of Kane, I was writing short scripts at first, and then I started writing longer ones. And so that was my role model. Can I read you a little thing that Francois Truffaut wrote about Kane? It, it uh, summarizes what what was so exciting to me about Kane. Go ahead. In 1959, which was the year that he directed his first feature, The 400 Blows, he, he observed that Kane consecrated a great many of us to the vo vocation of cineast. We loved this film because it was complete, psychological, social, poetic, dramatic, comic, baroque, strict and demanding. It is a demonstration of the force of power and an attack on the force of power. It is a hymn to youth and a, me a meditation on old age, an essay on the vanity of all material ambition, and at the same time, a poem on old age and the solitude of exceptional human beings, genius or monster or monstrous genius. It is at the same time a, quote, first film by virtue of its quality of catch-all experimentation and a, quote, last film by its comprehensive picture of the world. To shoot Citizen Kane at 25 years of age, is this not the dream of all the young habitués of the Cinematheques? Couldn't have said that better, and that really captures, uh, not only for me, but as he says, a whole generation of cineasts was inspired to to enter that profession, I think, by Kane. You, you could probably ask any director and, and many writers and uh, scholars as well as screenwriters, and they would all say that film helped break the mold for them. Another reason Kane grabbed me was it's a newspaper film, and I come from a newspaper family. My parents were newspaper reporters, and I, I was I sold my first professional magazine article when I was 12 in 1960, and and I edited the school paper. So I loved the whole newspaper aspect of Kane as well. Sounds like you were born and made to just be a devotee of this film and Orson Welles. Sounds like it was just in your pedigree to immediately acclimate to this. And, and all these great discoveries of the movie and the experience that you're relating are so savory. I just love hearing these kind of experiences. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I also like the fact that, you know, he was young. I mean, that was a mm -hmm. big deal because... Um, 
you know, most of the filmmakers that I admired then were old guys. I mean, he wasn't young in, in 1966. Well, he was, you know, uh, in his 50s, but um, he seemed old to me at the time. But the fact that he made it when he was 24 and 25 was astounding to me. And it, it was astounding to everybody at the time. No question. But also uh, the fact that he was from Wisconsin was mm -hmm. a thrill to me. That, you know, a kid from Wisconsin could go out and revolutionize the film business was inspiring. Absolutely. I want to ask you how and why Kane is such an important and innovative sociocultural and artistic artifact. So in other words, in what ways was Citizen Kane influential on cinema and popular culture, for that matter, or set trends in any way? Yeah, that's a big question. And people have written whole books, um, you know, about the myriad things about Kane that are uh, influential. Just one thing I could mention is that it's kind of a meta film. It's about filmmaking and it's about uh, the media. That's very far ahead of its time for a filmmaker to comment satirically and critically on the media because Kane is a media baron. He's a newspaper baron. And, you know, William Randolph Hearst is his uh, partial model. And, uh, but Hearst was also a film producer, et cetera. And, uh, mm -hmm. The, Wells had been a man of, you know, the radio and the theater. So the films, after Kane's death, it has a whole newsreel, which is one of the most wonderful parts of the film. It's a spoof newsreel, a, a spoof of the march of time. Right. It very cleverly, in a very sophisticated way, uh, encompasses sort of the, the growth of film from the silent days to, to uh, 1941, showing different styles of filmmaking and uh, old scratchy, films speeded up and things the way people would have seen it at the time and it, it really is kind of a, a tour of the cinematic medium right there and then the rest of the film is an investigation let's go beyond the superficial aspects of the media the slick newsreel you know kind of time style mm -hmm. approach to character and dig into who who really was this guy and so it, it, that's a critique of the media too that the media are superficial and that we need to delve more deeply into human nature, and that's what the film becomes. I mean, you're just giving us one example, I and mean, there's myriad examples, of course, but just this meta-film uh, aspect of Kane, which, you know, we could talk volumes about uh, just that particular topic, right? I want to talk briefly, just to kind of give a roundup. I think it would do a service to our audience, especially those a little less familiar with the innovative approaches in Citizen Kane, just to kind of rattle off a few of the more creative uses of some of these techniques, for example. Much has been spoken about the use of deep focus, deep focus shots with amazing depth of field. Much has been talked about in terms of the complex camera movements, the use of subjective camera in Kane, the incredible lighting and cinematography, the uh, chiaroscuro style high contrast lighting, the fantastic use of visual effects, the matte painting the animation, the trick photography, the makeup effects, the low-angled shots showing the ceilings, the, of course, the unconventional narrative storytelling, the use of flashbacks, the nonlinear storytelling for that matter, long uninterrupted shots and takes, the puzzle-like construction, the complex message, the flashbacks that seem to kind of mirror and overlap other flashbacks in the story. All of these things as a, as a great bouillabaisse Maybe not the first instances of their kind ever used in cinema, but in terms of an amalgamation of all these tricks and techniques used creatively in such a way for the first time. Well, I'm glad you qualified that at the end, because one thing I always say uh, to students, and I, I, I bear this in mind when I write, be very wary of using the word first when you deal with film history, because mm -hmm. you can often find that actually somebody did it back in 1908 or 1912 or whatever. <laughs> 
and also we're we're missing 90% of silent films so That's we don't true. even know uh, what was done and and films resurface and then you find out oh this film did this back in 1920 or something and uh, for example, ceilings on the set, a lot was made of that, but Stagecoach had done that in uh, 1939, John right? Ford's, okay. sure. Uh, Wells, that was Wells's cinematic textbook, like Kane was for me. Uh, when I told him that I had seen Kane 60 times, he said, how can you see any film 60 times? And I said, well, you saw Stagecoach 40 times in one month. And he said, well, I didn't actually watch it. He said, what I did was uh, every night for a month, I would sit there at RKO in a screening room with some different expert in a particular field, like, you know, an editor, a composer, a costume person or mm. set designer, whatever. And we would sit there and talk through the film and he, he or she would, you know, point out this is how they did this and this is how they did that. But Stagecoach has ceilings and sets and some low angles. Did not and, know that. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but Kane does it in a more flamboyant right. way that calls calls attention to it. I think that's what grabbed people because Wells put the camera in, in under the floor. They actually built, not only did they build sort of wooden platforms on the sets so they could shoot from below the floor, but they also, uh, took jackhammers and uh, broke up some of the concrete floors and dug. Was that a first of its kind, Joe, from from what you understand? Like, is this first time that they're building trenches for cameras in the floor and so forth? Well, I don't know about in the studio. I'm sure everything was done before, but certainly mm-hmm. trenches. I mean, there are pictures of John Ford shooting the Iron Horse in 1924 where he and two cameramen are underneath a train uh, tracks. But Wells and Greg Toland, his great cinematographer, probably the greatest cameraman of all time, experimented very freely it's an experimental film it draws from some avant-garde techniques but what do you know in terms of kane was definitely the first what was it the first in for example is this the first film to feature mirrored and overlapping flashbacks that essentially create the rashomon effect of inconsistent testimonies not necessarily um for example um the film the power and the glory uh, 1933 mm. that Preston Sturgis wrote, and he was a great screenwriter. He's a friend of Wells, and it was about a tycoon, and Spencer Tracy played the part. And sometimes people think that influenced Wells and/or Mankiewicz, and uh, Wells kind of denied it. But that had an intricate flashback structure, and uh, flashbacks were used from way back in the early days. Sure. And the real way to look at Kane is that it, you know, it synthesized all these techniques in a very sophisticated way that both Mankiewicz and Wells, and certainly Tolan, knew everything about filmmaking i mean wells had a had a deep knowledge of filmmaking even at age 24 and uh, as he shows in too much johnson his knowledge of silent film was rich and he wanted to make a movie about the early days of uh, silence and when he came to hollywood uh some people were hostile to him but the people who were nice to him were the old timers he said they're the veterans Mm King Vidor or uh, John Ford, people like that were uh, friend, friends of him, and he got to know Griffith. And Griffith said, I like Citizen Kane, especially the stuff he stole from me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Griffith did not do things for the very first time. There were people before him, you know, uh, like Edwin S. Porter, who did cross-cutting and, uh, you know, suspense techniques. Sure. What about the claim to fame that is often given to Kane in terms of the first serious or major use of deep focus photography? Well, Toland had done that in other films too. Toland had been doing that for years, but they did it to a, a, a bigger degree. I moderated a series called Working with Wells for the AFI in the 70s. And every night we had a different person who worked with him or a panel. And one night we had a memorable event with Linwood Dunn, who was the uh, optical printer 
expert in Hollywood who worked on King Kong and did amazing work. With an optical printer, you can combine images. It's before CGI, you would shoot separate images and combine them. You'd photograph them numerous times. Anyway, he did an awful lot of work on Kane and he walked us through it. It was a fascinating evening. And a lot of what we think are Greg Toland uh, deep focus shots in Kane are actually Linwood done with his optical printer because some of the shots are impossible with the camera technique they had at the time. Hmm. For example, when Kane is typing the bad review and Leland approaches from the background, that's a split screen that Linwood Dunn put together from two different uh, shots that Wells and Toland did, but they're both in, in sharp focus. Almost everything in Kane is in focus, not, not everything, but he, he said he wanted the audience to be able to choose with their eyes what to look at. And the typical Hollywood style was to use focus to kind of show you what to look at. Like, let's look at the beautiful face of this woman and the background to be out of focus and, or whatever. And let's mm -hmm. uh, move over to this character and the other characters are kind of uh, out of focus. But Wells wanted everything to be in focus pretty much so that you could, uh, it, it was a more democratic way of treating the audience, that you could see the totality of a situation. Sure, and it's also more like real life. Yeah, like real life, we have the illusion, at least, of seeing mm -hmm. things. And, and so the sometimes the, the, the salient action in Kane is in the far background, and then somebody will walk to the foreground. But you know, John Ford did that with Toland in The Long Voyage Home, yeah. 1940s, a tour de force of cinema techniques the photography is astounding in that film and Toland had been experimenting with that technique which required a lot of lights and um, special lenses and things i'd say the thing that's most innovative about kane if you want to get into innovation is the use of sound okay because he brought a lot of radio techniques into um, cinema just things like a character will say half a sentence it'll cut to somebody finishing the sentence 25 years later, for example. That's, right, the, that's, the editing technique there, but also the over, he has overlapping dialogue here. He yeah, Hawks, Hawks had, had done overlapping dialogue before him, and mm -hmm. of course the theater, they did that, and Wells adapted a lot of theater techniques, but long takes are, are an attempt to kind of approximate the feeling of, of mm -hmm. being at a play where you're watching a scene unfolding without editing. And uh, actors like long takes if they're good actors because they can really explore a character and it's not fragmented. But I'll just tell you a funny story. On the first day of shooting The Other Side of the Wind, the Wells film that I acted in for five years, we were doing a scene and we were overlapping the dialogue and the sound man interrupted. He said, cut, cut. And Wells looked irritated because you're not supposed to do that. You know, He said, what is it? And the guy says, we have over overlapping dialogue. And Wells glared at him and said, we always have overlapping dialogue. <laughs> and he fired the guy that day. The guy was, that was his last day in the picture. Wrong thing to say to Orson yeah. Welles. Yeah. That's like saying on a Hitchcock film, hold it, hold it, we have suspense. You know? <laughs> we have a MacGuffin. It doesn't make any yeah, sense. <laughs> what's this MacGuffin going on here? Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was part of Wells' style, and it, it created a very rich and fluid mm -hmm. atmosphere. And with, but, you know, with Kane, part of it is a lot of people focus on technique, technique, but themes are very important. Yeah, no question. And there's so many great themes to sink your teeth into, right? Like Money Can't Buy You Love. Kane attempts to win friends and influence people and gain adoration from the public. 
and from Susan by spending money and, you know, purchasing things like building a costly opera house, <laughs> running a newspaper with red ink on the ledgers, and pilfering the best writers from his newspaper rival. He also acquires countless statues and priceless works of art to fill the void in his life where friends and loved ones would be. So money can't buy you love, I think, is another key message. Mm-hmm. Of course, Innocence Lost is another theme here, exemplified by both Rosebud and the Snow Globe, which symbolizes something Kane lost and cannot get back, his childhood and his mother. You think about the jigsaw puzzles that Susan works on, which serve as an apt metaphor and motif for a complicated character like Charles Foster Kane. And to me, it's interesting that in a film that relies on multiple flashbacks and interviews with aged friends and lovers of Kane to tell its story, all of these narrators are kind of unreliable and their recollections are questionable because they are let's say in the case of Bernstein, Leland and Susan respectively they're influenced by obsequiousness by senility and by alcoholism because Kane himself isn't telling his own life story we're forced to depend on the testimony of these first-hand witnesses who are each flawed in their abilities to conjure up memories of Kane. And then you, you talked about the power of the media and the moguls who run the media. Now, Kane is an amalgamation of several real-life tycoons, as, as Wells had tried to explain, but particularly Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, whose money and influence and ego swayed public opinion, and who was nearly successful in having this film buried and destroyed. And Kane's larger-than-life persona as a media baron, you could make a case that lives on today in a figure like, let's say, Rupert Murdoch. Sure. No, I think that's is prescient in so many ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's endlessly current. I'll just tell one little story that I think is really important that most people don't know, but Robert Wise told me this, and he was the editor of Kane. Uh, when Hearst was actually trying to you know, stop the film, they made an offer. MGM, uh, Louis B. Mayer, uh, and uh, various moguls were made an offer to RKO for 800000 which was about the cost of the film. They were going to buy it and burn it. And they were, uh, George Schaefer was Wells' great champion at RKO, the head of production, and he didn't want to do that. But they had a screening at Radio City Music Hall in the projection room for the heads of the uh, New York companies that ran the studios and their attorneys and Wells and Wise was there. And this was going to be the meeting where they're going to decide whether they're going to release this film or burn it or what. And, you know, this is make or break. And he said that Wells, uh, Wise said Wells gave the greatest performance of his life. He gave this great speech that this is the world is being attacked by fascism. The, Hitler and Mussolini are rampaging through Europe. And what and, does that tell you? The power of his persuasion, but also the voice of Orson Welles is arguably his greatest gift. So his voice there comes to the defense of the film. Yeah. And that's no small point, right, Joe? His greatest power was as a communicator on radio. I just love his work on radio. I, I'm not diminishing his, his talents yeah, as yeah. a filmmaker. He's one of my favorites. But the voice of Orson Welles yeah. could, could practically make you do or buy anything. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. I, I've often thought, having studied him for you know more than 50 years, I agree with you. His greatest talent was oratory. Mm-hmm. He was a great orator, like Winston Churchill or somebody, you know, think of the greatest. And he had a magnificent voice, as you say, could persuade people. And he was maybe aware of the danger of that. But in this case, he persuaded them. He talked about the freedom of the press and the freedom of expression. And he said, that's what we're fighting for. We have to preserve that. And he was so powerful in his persuasion that they, they said, yeah, release the film. He was holding a rosary. He was not really very religious, but 
he was sitting next to Joseph Breen, who's the Catholic, a very Catholic head of the uh, production code. Mm -hmm. And he was pretending to pray and he dropped the rosary on the floor so that Breen would notice it and he picked it up again. And uh, he, he felt that clinched the case for Kane, you know. Wells was a showman too. He knew how to play the game. It's an anti-fascist film, which is very important. Hearst was uh, kind of a quasi-fascist figure at that time. And Wells was concerned. Wells was a progressive left-winger and he was blacklisted later. He was never a communist, but the FBI tried very hard to uh, find out if he was a communist and they concluded that he wasn't, mm -hmm. but he was promoting a lot of left-wing causes and, and in solidarity with labor movements and with minority group people and things that the FBI didn't like. And so in Kane, he's criticizing capitalism and, and great uh, media mogul who, who tries to control the minds of the public and, and the dangers of that. And there are even scenes of Kane hobnobbing with Hitler and right. uh, somebody who looks like Franco and, you know, power goes to his head. It's about power and the, the corrupting force of power and the dangers of that. But, you know, one of the things Truffaut, I think, observed that Wells's films are about the fragility of powerful figures. Hmm. Wells deals with paradox that his, his men are tremendously powerful, but they're very fragile and weak. He has a tragic sensibility that sense, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. men are in danger of collapsing and their empires collapse as happens in Kane and Kane becomes a rather pathetic figure at the end. So the reason he shoots those low angles, most people shoot low angles to aggrandize or valorize a character, but Wells does it for the opposite. They're, it's ironic. He shows like when Kane loses the election, it's the most extreme low angle. He, he's walking right near the camera and he almost looks like he's going to fall over, you know, and that's his lowest moment. And Wells is, yeah. is being ironic about it. And usually if you want to show somebody weak, you, you put the camera above them and show them as this kind of a small figure. But well, Wells does the opposite. He operates by paradox. And so his films are complex. And also Kane is not, is not completely a, a figure that we don't like. We, we kind of enjoy his rascality and his, he's kind of a rebel in his own way, uh, but within the field of journalism. And then he go, gets off the rails when he tries to be a politician, but he's, he's an unscrupulous yellow journalist like Hearst was too. And Bogdanovich said to him, you know, Kane is more sympathetic in the film than in the script. Why is that? And Wells said, that's true. But he said, I found out a lot about him as I played the character. And that's part of what an artist does. You don't just demonize people or treat them as role models. You know, unfortunately, I think we do that too much today. People are yeah. into simplistic notions of character and the studios foster that. But nope, this is an important point you bring up, Joe, which is if Kane is not a sympathetic slash empathetic figure, the movie is much less effective sure. because he needs to be complex. He needs to be complicated. And you need to have some rooting interest in him, even though much of the picture you despise a lot of what he stands for and his you know tyrannical kind of fascistic approaches to human beings uh, and his arrogance. But yet, you know, you do feel sorry for him in several scenes. And you recall uh, what happened to him in his childhood. And so this is very, very important, that emotional uh, context, yeah. right? Yeah, Kane sometimes is seen as a rather cold film. And I, and I, I guess it is to some extent because we have a, a, a quite a distance from him in some ways. But, that, you know, Kane is, is a critical analytical study. However, yeah, the childhood is very important and he's uh, wrenched from his mother. I mean, his mother sells him to a bank. You know, I still want to write about that sometime. Uh, what's that about? A mother selling the child to a bank? My gosh. Uh, and um, painful for her, you could see, but it's it's a horrible, tragic thing. And he, 
he doesn't see her again and you know the film portrays him as as a unloved character who's takes it out on people in terms of power and and the way he treats his wife susan alexander and is tyrannical and uh, there's a great you know well wells was a great director of actors i think the greatest director of actors ever in films wow and, okay and and the cast is amazing it's a lot of them are his mercury players from the theater and radio and um joseph cotton dorothy Comingor, um george Kaluris, everett sloan maybe my favorite character in the film mr bernstein so many good ones yes and a great screenplay and uh, mankiewicz brought a lot of um newspapers savvy to the film and the dialogue is very rich full of uh humor and wit. some of the best ever some yeah. of the best lines uh some of the most quotable lines ever yeah and very rich and deep and you know actually cut to the chase in the film the search for rosebud wells always thought was the one weakness in the film he thought it was kind of a, a, a gimmick dollar store freud or something yeah said, right? yeah that, <laughs> yeah dollar book freud i think he called there it there you go um but I, I i think it works and it works in different ways because partly he undercuts it that at the end of the film he said he wrote the speech where thompson the newspaperman who i i focused on earlier nobody had ever paid attention to this shadowy newspaper guy mm -hmm. but he's he's our surrogate figure he's trying to find out He's trying to penetrate the mystery of Cain, and he becomes more uh, empathetic as the film goes along. If you f look at his progression, he starts out being kind of a jaded, cynical newspaper guy or newsreel guy, and then he becomes more uh, he, he becomes more caring about Cain. But at the end of the film, uh, some uh, other reporter says, "I bet if you found out what that rosebud meant, it would have explained everything." And he says, "No, uh, I don't think so. I don't think any word can ex explain a man's life." He gives a little speech about that to the other reporters in the midst of this great hall at Xanadu and Wells wrote that he said to take the mickey off of Rosebud and so he's he's basically saying human nature is a mystery we can't totally penetrate right human beings are very complex and, and I've learned over the years that people are made up of parts you know we have good parts and bad parts and mm -hmm. We have arrogant parts and we have humble parts and we have kind parts and cruel parts and, and they don't always um, mesh. And that's why the film has that kaleidoscopic structure and style that trying to penetrate the puzzle of human nature, it goes beyond one man, it's kind of yeah. human nature in general. And then the camera leaves um, Thompson and there's a wonderful tracking shot over all the detritus of his life and it, it goes to the sled and next to it, if you look carefully, is a picture of Cain and his mother and the, the loving cup that his employees gave him after he announced his first marriage impending. And uh, so these are the people he loved and lost. And the, yes. this, this guy comes and picks up the sled, this workman who doesn't care, doesn't know what it is, and throws it in the fire. We get this feeling like, well, in, in some way this does partially answer the question who he was but in some ways it doesn't you know it's a sure it's a dual symbol and then the smoke goes up into the sky and wells follows that and ashes to ashes is almost a message there right yeah we'll never totally understand this man but that's mm -hmm. part, of, part of his fascination that's part of why we study human nature wells was deeply versed in shakespeare and the classical uh, uh his films have a lot of affinities with greek tragedies and and uh, they deal with the mysteries of human nature, and that's part of what keeps this film uh, an object of study. We can go back to it many times. So, Joe, this is a birthday celebration, after all, uh, 80th anniversary of Citizen Kane. So what is Citizen Kane's greatest gift to viewers? What's your opinion here? 
Wow, I guess the possibilities of cinema, I mean, that's what grabbed me as a young man and um, grabbed a lot of other people. If you look at this film and you show it to some young person today, 12 year old, 15 year old, whatever, I, I, I would think if they could get over the reflexive antagonism people have toward black and white cinema. But anyway, they look at this and they would be just full of um, marvel, marveling over um, the possibilities of the camera and the use of narrative is, is breathtakingly wonderful and the very rich and funny uh, dialogue and the, and the exploration of characters and, and all the, the, Wells is playful in this film, uh, you know, with his, for example, when he looks at a picture of the world's greatest newspaper men and then it, it, he says, I'm going to get them and then it pulls back and there they are Amazing, and then the yeah. picture, picture is being taken. It's a, it's a magic trick, mm -hmm. but it's wonderful because it shows his ability to get what he wants. And that's, I think that would appeal to um, new viewers that, oh, this is just wonderful, playful use of the medium, but it, is, it, it expresses something about the character. And that's part of the gift. It rewards many viewings yes. because you see new, new depths and, and, and details. Kane was a kind of film, whether people quite realized in 1941 or not that you needed to study and watch over and over sure. again and uh, it didn't become a successful film commercially until the 50s when it was reissued mm -hmm. because as as people know Hearst uh, and Hollywood put up a lot of obstacles in the showing of the film it didn't get shown in very many theaters even though it got mostly great reviews but so a lot of people didn't see it until uh, the theatrical reissue in 56 and then when it arrived on TV and that's when my generation was starting to watch movies and that's why it's it became kind of a big deal uh, in the 50s and 60s makes sense uh, yeah just enjoyed a second life and then of course on home video and cable and television and it's now streaming so it, it it's taken on many iterations in its continued lifespan the print today they have a good print on uh, blu-ray mm -hmm. It's not quite as good as the 16 print that I saw. There were details that you can't see anymore. Well, I heard they lost the original negative. They don't yeah, there's some that. dispute mm -hmm. about what happened. One story is that it burned up. Another story is that it was inadvertently destroyed. But we don't have the negative, so it's not as totally sharp uh, as it once was. But um, it looks good today again. And uh, so you can see a beautiful print on on home video and there's a trailer that well shot for the film that's very funny yes, he directed it's himself, one of the great you know. trailers ever made yeah yeah so um, you know uh, fortunately we have home video back then you know as they say when i studied kane i had to finagle the print uh but today you can study films you can pause them you can go back and forth and, and uh, it's it is a textbook for appreciating cinema i think you could you couldn't do better starting a film class in a high school or college than just to show kane yes, and just take it here from, take it from there you know yeah all right, Joe, we're here to hear what you're currently working on. Now, you mentioned that you're updating Whatever Happened to Orson Welles. That should come out next year, right? Yeah, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career, 2006 book, which covers his whole career. It's uh, I started writing about his later work, which people don't know much about. And then I, I, I realized that to make sense of how he became a totally independent filmmaker, I wanted to study how he was actually an independent filmmaker throughout his life, even when he worked briefly for major studios like RKO. And that was part of his, his why we value him, but also part of the problem he had that he was so different and, and he didn't follow the rules. And But anyway, so I've updated that book with a, a new chapter on the completion of The Other Side of the Wind, commenting on it, and also on Too Much Johnson, 
and a few other things. That'll be out early next year awesome. from Kentucky. And I've, I've written a book, a critical study of Billy Wilder, another of my favorite directors as well as called him Wonderful Billy Wilder, he said the night before he died. Uh, it's called Billy Wilder Dancing on the Edge. Is this out yet or coming? It's coming out in the fall from Columbia University Press. You're so prolific. How many books have you written now, Joe? 22. Wow. And you're a marathon runner. You're not a sprinter. You're, you're doing these long form over many years, as you say. So that takes a lot of patience. Yeah. When I, one thing I learned is when you start writing a book, it's an endless lifelong activity. When I started writing on Wells in 66, I didn't realize I'd have to keep doing it for the rest of my life, <laughs> which is fine. But Wells's career is not over. He's got a, a whole range of unfinished films that are still waiting to yeah, come let, out. Yeah, let's hope they find the lost footage from Amerson's, which TCM is now aboard with. So maybe maybe we'll get some progress there. Yeah, Josh Grossberg is going to Brazil to do that search. I was hoping to do that myself, but I, I applaud that he's got his got it together to go down there, and maybe he'll find it, and that would be an amazing find, wouldn't no it? No question. Well, Joe, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here on Cineversary about Citizen Kane and Orson Welles, definitely one of my favorite subjects. It was a pleasure catching up with you and hearing you wax poetically on everything about this film. So. Thanks again, Joe. Well, thank you for having me and for celebrating Kane. Uh, we should all do that. And, and I really love being on your show. And anytime you want to talk about a, a great classic film, I'm your guy. Yep, if you couldn't tell, Joe and I, well, we could have gone on yakking for days about Orson Welles and his debut film. Mr. McBride is always chock full of fascinating facts, personal recollections, and delicious details about movies and movie makers. And that's what makes him a valued contributor to our podcast. So, a heartfelt thanks again to Michael, Scott, and Joe for helping us wish a very happy 80th birthday to Citizen Kane. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com. And that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Mm-hmm. This month's episode broke all Cineversary records for length so far. So we're going to skip standing ovations this time around and call it a show. But make your plans to join us again in June when I'll be donning a battered fedora and embark on a whip-cracking adventure of an episode that celebrates the 40th anniversary of one of the all-time great action films, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Because they're not getting older, they're getting better. better, better. As always, thanks for listening. Better.